Hello. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm fucking fantastic today, Monique. How the fuck are you? I live to see another day. Oh my god. That's boom. <laughs> Nailing it. That's too relatable right now. <laughs> like, well, I woke up again. And yeah. I mean, hey, that's better than most people on the planet. So that's very true. That's true. It's very true. There are more dead people than alive people. Yes. Ruminate on that. Think about it. Yeah. Or don't. I mean, whatever. <laughs> this is that feeling I get when I drive by a cemetery that's like acres. Where yeah. it's just like literally just like hills of tombstones. And I'm just like, this is like thousands of dead people just like right in this one area. You know that never occurs to me? It really? No. Oh my God. I've like literally obsessed about this thought of this since I was a kid. Like every time I drive by... Like, my parents would drive me by a cemetery. I always think, like, that's where all the dead people are. Like, that's where they are. Just chilling right there. Like, that's factually correct? Yes. And it sounds... I feel ridiculous. And I'm like, that's what I think. Because obviously, that's what that's the situation is. Yes. Yeah. But it, it just doesn't occur to me. I, I, I'm always like, I want to go in there. I wonder, like, to look at the tombstones. and It's, like, peaceful and quiet. Yeah. I kind of... Yeah. But also just, you know, if they're older... You know, there's different iconography on the tombstones that mean different things, or the tombstones yeah. are different, or some of them are very artistic and very yeah. beautiful. I used to do the like stencil, whatever oh, you call shit. that, or like the etchings, where you get like the paper and yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the charcoal, and you go over the thing. I don't know where or why or who like started me doing this, but I distinctly remember doing that as a kid at some point. That's pretty cool. Did you do that ever? No, I wasn't allowed in cemeteries oh. when I was a kid. <laughs> They weren't like, here's some paper and some charcoal. Knock yourself out. No, my my parents didn't foster this macabre fascination. They did everything they could to stifle it as much as fucking possible. So me being like, hey, can we go to a cemetery? Was like never the fuck going to be okay. Literally ever. Oh my gosh. It is more clear to me every time we talk, like how fucking weird my family is. And the fact that like all of this is totally normal to me. And I like didn't think anything was weird about it. No, I remember... When I was 16, I think, my parents and and us, me, the, the children, uh, went on a, a two-week-long cruise that was from Nova Scotia to Fort Lauderdale. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's fucking far, dude. Yeah. Holy shit. How was that? It was great. I was like, that um, sounds beautiful, actually. That's like the whole East Coast. It was great because a, a trip like that is not inexpensive. So it was lots of people's, like life savings trip so everyone was very grateful and appreciative and enjoying themselves and, and like, very old oh yeah which meant that by nine o'clock the like me and my brothers and the <gasps> handful of other 16 to 18 year olds like ran that motherfucker i love it it was amazing you're like the cruise ship gang you're going around like stay off my fucking decks bitch yeah i mean we would like break into the karaoke bar and there was a whole thing where <laughs> We we figured out how to turn on the music, but not how to turn on the screen. And, oh, no. And there's a, a memory I have that we put on the Beatles' Hey Jude. And at the time, don't come for me. I was fucking 16. I didn't know any better. But no one knew the all of the lyrics to Hey Jude. We just knew the na, na, yeah. na, 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 na. So we just kept doing it for like the six minutes of that song. And, and I remember the security guard we assumed busting us, but he didn't give a fuck. Uh, he was just like, yeah, he hung out with us. It was great. But so one of the <laughs> stops was in Charleston. And Christina, I remember the year prior, had gone. And Christina was my only spooky touch point in my life. 
basically up until I met you, realistically, uh, but definitely yes. in high school. And she was like, oh, yeah, I went on a fucking ghost tour when I went to Charleston. And, like, apparently it's, like, haunted as fuck. And we went on, like, a, a cemetery tour. So we get to Charleston. So we're good. It's one of the stops. And I was like, we please do it's a like, ghost tour? Like, all I want. Please. And my older brother and my mother were so shitty about it. Of course. They were so shitty about it. They Like, my father appeased me because it was the one thing I asked for in two weeks. Aw, Roberto. Um, Roberto, thank you. Solid, yeah. Nailed it. But Marielena and, and my older brother were not here for it. They, you can stay on the ship then, and I'll go have fun by myself. Exactly. Yeah. And it was Dad like, can take me, thanks. It was not like a big fucking... It so wasn't a big deal. We weren't even allowed in the cemeteries. It was just at night. They're like, oh, by the way, like some haunted shit happened here. Yeah. For the most part, it's like just a walking tour at night of like beautiful buildings and you happen to get some like spooky stories. Literally. Yeah. But like if you don't like the spooky stories, hang back so you can't really hear the guy and just like pay attention to the beautiful architecture. What's the problem? Exactly. So no, my parents never took me to a cemetery ever. Uh, I remember, uh, well, we went to Arlington National Cemetery because that's like a thing you do. Yes. And my mother being like, don't touch like the handrails. And you're like, what? Like, what? it just, I, I get don't the know. tombstones, but like, I, that's what it's, it's literally called a handrail because my hand goes on it. I don't know. I don't fucking know. No, none of this. I am this way to their disdain and disapproval. <laughs> Well, I love it. You bring all of that to me. I want all of that. We can go on as many cemetery tours as you want. Girl, I'm here for it. Fuck yeah. I'll bring my own paper with charcoal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll do it for the first time. Never done that. I feel like as an adult, you're gonna be like, this is really not that exciting. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think there's just cemeteries that are very beautiful. And then sometimes I've come across cemeteries that uh, that are particularly old. I remember going to one that was just like close to the airbnb i was staying at and who the fuck knows where because you know i read the tombstones and i you know put together the dates of how old someone was and there was like five kids that all died like the same year and it was so upsetting to me that i had to find out what like what happened happened. It was like a tuberculosis outbreak. Oh, fuck, yeah. Because I was like, was this a fire? Like, what yeah. the fuck? Um, Brutal murder, I must know. Yeah, yeah. totally. I'm like, axe murder shit. But yeah, it was just tuberculosis. Womp womp. Womp womp. Um, Still super sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's those are horrifying. Those are always the ones that get me where you're like, oh, that's like a five-year difference in between those dates. That's not cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just because we didn't have the medicines then. Yes. we have them now. Yes. Just why you take them. But, yeah, no, I love cemeteries. I try to go, uh, every time I go out of town, I try to visit the local cemetery. Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's some really beautiful ones, like Greenwood Cemetery, which I still have to take you to. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Uh, Bonaventure in Savannah is, like, so gorgeous and has the Spanish moss. I was like, Savannah, yeah, it's just gorgeous. So the drama is just outrageous. Yeah. I love all of that. Yeah. We got to do a cemetery situation soon. Fuck yeah. You and I. Yeah. I'm down. Get that calendar going. Figure that shit out. <laughs> Girl, on one of our many days off here. Oh, right. Exactly. So many days <laughs> Joking. Off. We're working all the time. <laughs> Literally all the time. But that doesn't mean that I didn't find time to, one, watch the chase like 4,000 times. <gasps> 
I love you. I was lamenting my inability to stream it to my actual TV, and therefore I got frustrated and didn't end up watching it because I was going to have to watch it on my phone. Here's the thing. I still love it. Not gonna <gasps> lie. I loved it. I was going to say, I had no doubts that I was going to love it still because I was obsessed with it. I pretty much remember, like, besides the body, the... Yeah. You mentioned the, like, morgue vehicle, like, dropping it was the a, a It was, a like, a medical school <gasps> thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Besides that, I pretty much, like, remembered all of it. I remembered how it ended, like, yes. which is rare for me, mm-hmm. which is how you know I was obsessed with it. I watched it 400 million times, <laughs> like an insane person. Did uh, the sex scene live up to our raving about it? Because Oh, 10,000 fucking percent. So it's really hot, hot, right? It's so fucking uh, hot. Uh, yeah. yeah. But something I didn't realize, the O.J. Simpson chase happened three months after that movie came out. Wait. It, I thought it was like, oh, this is like, you know, kind of parodying this. No, it was completely separate. And three months later was when the Bronco chase happened. I did not put any of that together. Yeah. Weird, actually. I know. Because it's, it's, I thought it paralleled it almost directly. Yeah. It's actually kind of weird. Because it yeah. super does. Like, the huh. the media, like, grotesque fascination with it. And, yeah. And the, like, graphics of, like, terror on the freeway and the, all that kind of bullshit. Yeah, the calling and talking to him in the car. Yeah, even. the radio stations. Yeah. And, yeah, no, all of that happened three months later. Huh. Which, okay then. Yeah. I was very fascinated about that. I'm very fascinated about that. I'm yeah. glad you looked that up and told me. Oh, I mean, I couldn't not. And also there was, because, <laughs> uh, you know, there's a little trivia section in IMDb. The The first one on there is that in like a Dublin film festival on like classic retrospectives, they accidentally showed this movie instead <gasps> of the Marlon Brando movie, The Chase, which and I guess like no one really noticed. <laughs> I was like, everyone was actually super excited and came out and was like, that was amazing. Yeah, that sex scene mm. got me. I also got to watch the Val Kilmer documentary on I Amazon saw Prime. That, that came out. How was that? It's really great. I want to check it out. Yeah, it's kind of emotional. I didn't realize that he kind of has, it's not a voice box, but he kind of like can't. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. He had, he had throat cancer a few years ago. Okay. And wait, he recovered from it quickly, yeah. but it was the radiation that <gasps> kind of did him in. Oh shit. So he kind of can't act anymore because he can't really talk. Like he has to do the like pressing Press- the <gasps> tube to talk thing. Stoma? Is that what that's? I have no idea. Okay. So his son narrates the film as if he's Val Kilmer. That gave me chills. Yeah. Saying. That's, that's very sweet and touching. Um, fun fact, I have actually met Jack Kilmer. Get the fuck out! My friend was working on a movie with him and they needed extras. I ended up being an extra in the movie and he's really sweet and nice and down to earth and was actually like pretty close friends with my friend who worked on the movie. So she introduced us, and I actually got to, like, meet Jack Kilmer, which I was very fucking excited about. That is so fucking cool. It's very random. I have very few brushes with famous people. Yeah, like, (laughs) uh, compared to you especially, like, Uh because you're in the industry, obviously. Uh, So, yes, I'm very excited. And because of my obsession with The Saint, obviously, growing up, that was a fucking big deal. Yeah, he goes into it a little bit. (gasps) 
Okay, good. Yeah. All right, I'm doing that tonight. I Yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, because he was one of those people that got a bad rap for being difficult on set. Yeah, I feel like I remember that. And essentially he was like, no, I just want it done right. And you're dicking around. Yeah, I'm taking it seriously. This is my job. And there was even a quick clip of Robert Downey Jr. doing another interview of like, oh, Val Kilmer's difficult. Val Kilmer's difficult. He's fucking not. Like, he just is a professional and wants it done right. Which, yeah, kudos <laughs> to you. Thank that's you. Literally, you yes. would think that that's like the bare minimum. Yeah. But no, it, it's that thing. If if you are someone who takes pride in your work, in my life experience, I have found that that is often a detriment and not a plus. <sighs> I've had some experience with that as well. Yeah. I can understand that. It's pretty fucking wild. Yeah. Because I grew up being told, like, no, just be excellent at what you do yes and that then, is the standard that's the minimum is yeah. excellence you should be providing yeah yeah but i think most people are basic bitches and they don't want to deal with that yeah and then a lot of times it's like oh you're actually making me look bad because you're doing like a lot mm. of work so i don't like that yeah you need to stop yeah thanks exactly yeah um but it was great it was great uh it's on amazon prime check it out it's called val Literally just saw the first little uh, thumbnail for it last night. I was like, ooh, right at my alley. So I'm glad you watched it. I'm glad it has the Monique Sanchez seal of approval because I trust trust your judgment. Oh, I'm so glad. You make the best recommendations. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) You know this woman. I mean, I think I have excellent taste. You have excellent taste. It's very true. Uh, Side note, thanks so much for all the DMs uh, about the Keon story. People really resonated with it and were fucking really? blown away about it. Fuck. It yeah. was an amazing story. Yeah. Enraging, obviously, but. Yeah, the, the reveal that it was his brother the whole time <gasps> and that I worked for him. I still can't get over that. She, no one could get over it. Oh, yeah. could not handle my life. It's crazy, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, we did an interview with the PE podcast, which if you haven't listened to, you should. You should. So I know I, I curse a lot. That's not a secret to me but they released on their instagram to promote the episode two audio files with like a post yeah i saw that and one of them was me talking one of them was you talking and because i guess it's on the well because it's on the gram they would bleep out the curse words and it was like bleep 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 and i was like fuck i curse a lot wow it's it's a very it's very different when you're hearing the bleeps you're like oh shit I get it. I get why my mom's pissed. It's a, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. I really uh, <laughs> throw them just in everywhere. Yeah. It's like confetti. I just throw it everywhere. See where it lands. Oh my God. It's so true. I only ever pick up on it when I'm suddenly around children. Yeah. When the mom is suddenly sending me the death glare of like, really? Every other word needs to be fuck and dick and shit. Yeah. And like, I mean, yeah. I'm an adult. We're in public. Like, And they're sorry. excellent words. Yeah. Sorry, yes. not sorry. Thank you really just like flavors my story a little bit exactly thank you yeah do you want to introduce the podcast oh yeah that's a great idea this is another fucking horror podcast i'm monique sanchez i'm amy Trayton. welcome welcome <laughs> to the show you know the deal <laughs> we are so bad at this ah uh, fuck it i know you know and you know because we do this all the fucking time yeah literally and you're used to it by now i would fine. imagine i would hope so yeah also, you technically clicked on the little square. So you should know. You should know what you're listening to. Yeah. Yeah. It tells you. I'm putting this on you, listener. <laughs> Don't blame us. It's not on us. 
you should just know. Is there anything else? I think I'm okay. You want to get to it? Yeah. Yeah. Got a, a spooky weird what the fuck? I got a spooky weird what the fuck for you. Yes. All right. So this I first heard about on Unsolved Mysteries. Fuck yeah. However, for some strange reason, despite much investigation to determine which episode and being told multiple times it was a certain episode only to find that episode and realize it was not in that episode, mm. I was unable to locate the episode with this section. So most Sometimes of- with certain episodes- uh, Like mix and match or something almost? Well, they'll like- when you go back, they cut out certain portions of it. Oh, is that what it because is? Because of like whatever legal thing. Oh. So okay. it could be that it was that episode, but they cut out that portion. Maybe that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's where I first heard about it, but I did not actually get a chance to rewatch the Unsolved Mysteries because I couldn't find it online. So I did watch, however, which also covered the story. The show Paranormal Witness. Yeah. Have you seen that? Fuck yeah. I had not before. Yeah. And I was super excited. I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, So this was season one, episode 12. Other sources are latimes.com, the Santa Cruz Sentinel, findagrave.com, newspaperarchives.com, unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com, and mysteriousuniverse.org. So... Christine Skubish was a 23-year-old single mother to her three-year-old son, Nick. She was bubbly and outgoing and very independent. Christine was an amazing mother, and her stepfather, Dave Stoutzenbach, said, quote, she was the mother every little boy wanted to have, end quote. Ugh. I know. Ugh. I know. I, I know. I'm setting it up right from the start here. Yeah. It's not. It's ominous as fuck already. Yeah. Paragraph one, two sentences in. Oof. Brace yourself. Christine was incredibly ambitious and had worked several jobs to pay for college. After she graduated, she was going to move 600 miles away to Southern California to marry her fiancé, Nick's father. On the way, she planned to visit a few friends in Carson City, Nevada. So on Sunday, June 5th, 1994, she packed her car with as many of her and Nick's belongings as she could, said she'd call in a couple of days, and left her family's home near Sacramento, heading for Carson City. Mm. The trip took them through the wilderness along Highway 50 through the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Three days later, on Wednesday morning, Christine's stepfather Dave got a call from Christine's friends saying that she hadn't arrived and wondering if he had heard from her. Oh my god. When he said he hadn't, they quickly realized that something must have happened to her. So Dave immediately started calling the hospitals trying to locate Christine, and when that didn't turn up anything, he called the police department to file a missing persons report. Mm. Dave said they were fairly dismissive, telling him that it had only been 48 hours and that they get Fuck hundreds, you. right, hundreds of calls like this a week. This is also the 90s? Yeah, 94. Ugh. Yeah. So they're a little more blase back then. It was like, nah, fuck it. Well, they did take down the information for the official missing persons report. Their attitude was basically like, she'll show up, don't worry about it. Rich Strasser, who was a deputy with El Dorado County Sheriff's Department at the time, had heard of the case but just thought it was a routine missing persons case. With mother and son already missing for three days, Christine's family started doing anything they could, putting up posters and going around asking businesses if they had seen her, but they turned up nothing. Shortly after, Christine's stepfather got a frantic call from her aunt Karen. She told him she'd had a dream, and in it, she could see Nikki, but not Christine. (gasps) She said she never saw Christine. Oh my god. 
but kept seeing the number 16 over and over again. Oh my God. Dave said, quote, she had premonitions before, but this was so real that she knew that she was going to find them. The dream was vivid enough that she believed it, end quote. Oh my God. Now missing for four days, the police made the search for Christine and Nick a priority. That day, which was Friday, Strasser was approached by the detective who had been assigned the case. The two talked, and the other officer shared his suspicions that Christine might have stopped at one of the 24-hour gas stations in Placerville to fill up. There were four of them, and they went to all of them to show a picture of Christine to whoever was working and ask if anyone had seen her or the vehicle. Mm -hmm. At one of the gas stations, the young clerk told Strasser that he recognized the woman from the photo and remembered her, the car, and that she'd had a little boy with her. The clerk said she had bought a couple of sodas and they'd exchanged some small talk. He remembered two things specifically from their conversation. That one, she said she was really tired but going to see a friend. And two, she had to make the drive up Highway 50, which is a windy mountain road. Oh my god. <sighs> yeah. Not not a good combination. No. Being tired, tired and driving. up a windy mountain road? No. Oh my god. After hearing that, Strasser began to worry that Christine had had an accident and possibly driven off the road. Yeah. But he also couldn't eliminate the possibility that she hadn't been the victim of foul play. Mm. On Saturday, June 11th, 1994, Deborah Hoyt, who was visiting some family in Sacramento, California at the time and had never heard of Christine Skubish, woke up with a start around 2 a.m. She said, quote, I just sat up in bed and had this thing inside me that I needed to go home and I needed to go home then, end quote. Deborah told her husband she wanted to go home right then. He tried to convince her to wait until the morning, but she insisted, mm. saying she wanted to go right now. She even admitted that normally she would have just gone back to sleep, but she said she just, quote, kept bothering him until he finally said okay, end quote. When shit like that happens, you can't ignore it. Yeah. It's the feeling inside of you that's like, no. Yeah. This is imperative. This needs to happen right now. That was in the the Surfside building collapse. There was a guy who lived there who was um, staying with his girlfriend and he was going to go home that day. And she's like, no, you have to stay. You never stay here on a Wednesday. Like, And he's like, no, I have like an early meeting like whatever and she like wouldn't let him go it's like you never stay here you have to stay here you have to stay here you have to what? stay here and so he was like fuck it i'll stay with her oh no no but and then he stayed with her she, he was the one who lived in the building she did oh, oh, oh. <gasps> and then at 1 30 in the morning when he would have been there sleeping the fucking building collapsed Chills. Yeah. Full body chills. And he was like, this has completely changed our relationship. I'm like, yeah. no fucking shit. Like, she saved your life. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, that she was like, you never stay here during the week. Like, what the fuck? You need to stay here. You need to stay here. You need to stay here. And after like her, like, kind of like harassing him about it, he was like, fuck it. You're right. I never stay here during the week. I'm going to stay. <gasps> even though like, I have to get up even earlier to go home for my early meeting to change. Like, you're, yes, I'll stay. Holy shit. Nagging saves lives, people. <laughs> Words to live by. I stand by that. Okay. <laughs> oh, that always got me about 9-11 too. Like how many stories you heard of like people who had run late and missed their yes. train or like the little, missed their flight, little things like that. And just like, it's so, 
I mean, I, I truly oh, believe so chilling, that, but yeah, you know, if it's your time, it's your time. Yes. And when it's not, that's why I no longer stress being late to shit or missing shit. I'm like, I wasn't supposed to be on that plane. I was supposed to be on that train. Not to say that anything ominous is happening, but it's like, I'm just not supposed to be on that yep. train. Like, that's fine. This Whatever. is how it was supposed to go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually probably better, honestly. I mean, I've chilled the fuck out a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, it. definitely like less stressful. Less stressful, less anxiety. It's good. Yeah. Well, take note, everybody. Yeah, there you go. So she keeps bothering him until he finally says, okay. Despite the incredibly late hour, they jumped in the car and started to make the drive from Sacramento back to their home in Lake Tahoe, which had them passing through Placerville into the mountains. Deborah said it was odd because she normally doesn't like traveling on that road at night because it's a Fucking very- obviously. Yeah. It's a very winding road through the mountains and can be very dangerous if it's dark out. Yeah. But she just said, quote- I just felt like there was something pulling me up the mountain, end quote. I'm fucking obsessed with this. Girl. When I heard this story, I was like, oh my God, this has so many great things in it. I'm so here. Yes. Because it's true. Like, I can't imagine that everyone hasn't had an experience like this. Not maybe to this dramatic level, but of a thing of like, you don't know why, but you're like, don't go this way or do this thing, even though- it's inconvenient to you, but there's a, a nagging thing that you're like, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have yes. to do this. And then it turns out that there's a reason why. Like, it kind of worked out for you or, or something happened. Like, I think, because it's definitely happened to me. Oh, yeah. Like, I can't, I, I imagine that's everybody, you know? I would, I would like to think that most people it's happened to. Let us fucking know. Let us know. I, I feel like a lot of times people just, like, dismiss it, it. And then a lot of times they don't know what would have come of it because they didn't, mm. like, listen to their gut in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Let us know. Yeah. Another fucking horror podcast uh, at gmail.com, period, instead of the you and fucking. Tell us all your weird premonition stories. For sure. Fuck yeah. Back to the story. Back to the story. Then, as she and her husband were going around a curve of Highway 50 known as Bullion Bend, Deborah, who had been looking out the window, saw something on the side of the road. She described it as this, quote, blackish white thing, end quote but didn't know what it was from a distance. It wasn't until they were right up on it that she could tell it was a woman. <gasps> According to Deborah, the woman was laying on her side, facing the road with her knees slightly bent. Oh my God. I full body chills. Oh my God. She had one arm underneath her head <gasps> with the other resting on her head. Deborah said she was totally naked and very <gasps> pale. She said, quote, I can see her body and I can see it was a woman, but I could not see her shadow. End quote. What the fuck? Deborah, who was understandably freaked out, told her husband that she just saw a dead body on the side of the road. And although he personally didn't see it, he wanted to stop thinking they could go back and help whoever it was. Mm -hmm. But Deborah said no, that she didn't want to go back, that she was worried that the naked woman was actually a ploy or a trap and that there might be someone hiding in the woods waiting to kill whoever stopped to help the woman. That's how I feel all of the time, and I, I hate that I feel that way. I know, and I hate that, like, you're, like her mind even had to go there and think, like, this might be a trap. I can't stop and possibly help this woman who's in danger. Yeah. I have to just keep driving. Because the reason you think that is because people have used things like that as a trap. Yes. It's because it's happened. Yes. It's like when you read a sign that sounds really stupid, and you're like, why would they even have to put a sign up that says that? It's because somebody fucking did it, and they had to put a sign up that said the very obvious thing you thought nobody would fucking do that they obviously fucking kept doing. Yeah. As we say, this is why we can't have nice things. Exactly. 
Deborah told him they should find the nearest phone instead and call the police. There was a ranger station about a half mile away with a phone, and they stopped there to call 911 to report the body Deborah had seen beside the road. The dispatcher told her someone would be there shortly and advised them to stay in the car with the doors locked and wait for the officer to arrive. The two stayed in the car and waited for what felt like hours, but was probably- At the station. At the um, the gas station. The, like, ranger station? The ranger station. Okay. Just to clarify my brain, not- they didn't, like, go back for her. No, no, no. Yes. They drove half a mile to this ranger station, which they knew had a phone, and they used the phone, and then they waited at the ranger station for the cop. Cool. And that's where we're at now. Great. When Deborah saw that the police had arrived, she immediately jumped out of the car and ran over to tell the officer that she had seen a naked woman on the side of the road. She told him that the woman was very pale and that she believed that she was dead. The officer asked her and her husband to take them to the place Deborah had seen her, but to stay back 200 yards. Mm. When they got to Bullion Ben, they stopped and she told the police that this was the place. The officer got a spotlight and started searching the side of the road for any sign of the naked woman that Deborah claimed she had seen. But when they came back down, they said they hadn't found anything mm. and told Deborah and her husband that they should just go back home. On the way back, she told her husband that she didn't think the police had believed her. Yeah. She was worried, yep, that they thought she was crazy and would just stop the search. Deborah said, quote, but I know I saw her on that road, end quote. Mm. Later that night, Strasser met up with the officers who had responded to Deborah's call and began speculating about what it could be. They wondered if she was imagining it or if maybe it was a practical joke. He said, quote, they believed her. It wasn't like they dismissed her as being a whack job, but they believed her, end quote. Hmm. Basically, they can tell that she's telling the truth and that she believes herself. Right. And they like, she's very convincing. They didn't think she was like lying intentionally. Right. They're like, at minimum, she believes she saw, she saw yes. this thing, but maybe it actually was something else that wasn't that. Yes, exactly. When Deborah got back to her house in Lake Tahoe, she just laid on her bed and kept crying. She said, quote, I kept trying to go to sleep, but she kept popping in my head. Oh, my God. And when it did, I would wake up and cry, end quote. Ugh. Like, this is affecting her badly. Yeah. I can't even imagine this. Like, waking up in a panic, feeling like you have to leave immediately, seeing this apparition on the side of the road, basically. And not just that you have to leave immediately. We have to leave... Through this specific spot that normally I would never take, but for some reason, we need to go through this way. And then seeing this. And then seeing this. And then getting home and being, like, inconsolable almost, where you just, like, keep waking up and crying at the thought of this. Like, I can't imagine any of that. Right? No. So upsetting. Then Deputy Strasser got a call to go back to the Sheriff's Department to meet with Christine's aunt and uncle, who had just driven all night to Placerville from Southern California. They were obviously concerned for Christine and Nikki and were determined to start their own search when police told them that they were looking at a stretch of Highway 50. Strasser told them that they were tired, though, and advised them that they should get some sleep first so they could start fresh in the morning. But as he was talking to them, he was becoming more and more suspicious that there was a connection between this naked woman and Christine Skubish. Yes. He said, quote, I just had a sixth sense. I thought, I'm going to go up in that area and search myself, end quote. Yes. Fuck yeah. Meanwhile, Christine's parents were desperate to find her and getting more and more worried as the days passed. Christine's stepfather said, quote, we knew something had happened, but we didn't know what, end quote. Mm. Early on the morning of June 11th, as the sun was rising and it was getting lighter out, Deputy Strasser set out to Bullion Bend to conduct his own search of the area. 
As he approached William Ben, where Deborah said she saw the naked woman, he started looking for anything out of the ordinary. Debris, skid marks, anything. Then he saw it. A small black tennis shoe on the side <gasps> of the road. He immediately stopped his vehicle and got out. The shoe appeared to belong to a child, and Strasser said he just thought, what are the odds that this is Nikki's shoe? Ugh, I like literally haven't breathed since you said that. Oh my god. Oh my god. I gave myself chills reading it, I'm not gonna lie. As he approached that side of the road, he could look down and see it was a very steep drop-off with a lot of big pine trees. <gasps> Looking down the 40-foot embankment, he started to see debris scattered down the slope. Ugh. And at the very bottom, <gasps> he saw a red car that matched the description of Christine's vehicle. Oh my god. I know. The whole roof had been peeled back <gasps> and the top of the car was literally just gone. Oh my god. I know. Which, obviously, everyone's immediate thought is, holy fuck. They're dead. They got decapitated. <gasps> However, that is not the case. I just want to prepare everyone for that situation right now. Okay, thank you. I didn't You're even welcome. think of that. Oh, shit. I just, I'm, I'm too, like, I'm too hung up on the last thing. That's fine. That's totally yes. fair. That's where my brain went first. When they said the roof was gone, I was like, oh my god, no, 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 no. I know what this is going to be. But it's not that situation. Great. Thanks for looking out. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy to help. <laughs> Strasser climbed down the embankment to see if there was any sign of anyone in the vehicle. When he approached the car, he recognized the woman sitting in the driver's seat. It was Christine Skubish. Strasser immediately felt for her pulse, but he knew when he touched her that she was already dead. As upsetting as it was to see Christine like that, it was even harder seeing three-year-old Nick in the passenger seat, naked and curled in a fetal position. He had a bluish tinge to his skin and had the quote, look of death, end quote, according to Strasser, who believed that he too was dead. Looking at Nick, he said, quote, that's what really got me, end quote. Checking on the little boy, Strasser shined a light in his eyes to see if there was any reaction. There was no change in his pupils, and when Strasser didn't feel a pulse, he believed Nick was dead. But as he was looking at him, he suddenly thought he saw the boy's chest rise just a little bit. (gasps) as if he was taking a breath. He was worried that he was just seeing things and that his mind was playing tricks on him, so he leaned in close, and to his utter amazement and relief, he could feel shallow breaths and realize that Nikki was in fact still alive. Oh my god. Strasser immediately radioed for help, then just stayed with him, trying to engage him and holding his hand. (gasps) He repeatedly called the boy's name and told him he was going to be okay. When another officer finally arrived, Strasser told him to wait with Nikki while he went back to make sure that the family didn't stumble on the scene. He knew Christine's aunt and uncle were determined to search the area, and he didn't want them to see the state that Christine or Nikki were in. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It was a good thing he did because he ended up intercepting Karen and had to stop her from going down the ravine. Strasser told her that Christine's car was down there and that he had found both her and Nikki in the vehicle. He then had to give her the heartbreaking news that Christine didn't make it and that Mm. she had died. He went on to reassure her that Nikki was in fact still alive, but had to warn her that he was in critical condition and would need immediate medical treatment. Mm. The firefighters and paramedics arrived, strapped Nikki onto a stretcher, and transported him out of the ravine. He was put into an ambulance and taken to the UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento. Nikki, who had been alone in the car for five days (gasps) without food or water. Oh my God. Was suffering from severe dehydration and hypothermia. He was covered with scratches and had blisters from exposure to poison oak. 
the doctors who examined him believed that he would have had only an hour or two left <gasps> to live had he not been rescued. That's how fucking close to death he was. Holy shit. I know. Five fucking days. And just to make sure everyone is clear on this, he is three years old. Oh my God. Like, actually insane. I have given myself chills multiple times reading this because it's just, it gets me in my heart so much. I like can't. Do do you go into why he was found naked or is it like a paradoxical undressing i believe it's a paradoxical undressing situation they did not really go into it but but i'm assuming if he was suffering from hypothermia that that's what that's probably what it was okay there was no sign of like assault assault or anything anything. yeah okay cool as far as anyone knows he was alone with his mother yes was she and uh, she was also naked correct no 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 oh oh no huh yes The police believe that sometime after 2 a.m. on June 6th, Christine fell asleep at the wheel. She drove off the road and crashed her car at the bottom of a steep incline. Due to the incline, motorists drove past the accident scene for those five days unaware of Mm. the crash below. Mm. While Nikki was being treated at the UC Davis Medical Center, Dave, Christine's stepfather, got the call that they had found both Christine and Nick. When his wife, Brenda, asked if they were okay, he was devastated to tell her that Christine was dead, but consoled her with the fact that Nikki was still alive. Although they were heartbroken to have lost their daughter, they were so happy that Nikki had survived. Mm. When Christine's father got to the hospital, Nikki held up his arms, calling for his pop-pop. I know. Dave, his grandfather, said, quote, he was pale, skinny, but he had a smile on his face. Oh my God. He went over and held him gently, quote, like a baby, end quote. And like in the interview he like is getting very choked up when he describes this he said quote he's going to make it he's a super tough kid end quote eventually nikki started remembering things according to his great aunt karen quote he said there was a tree lying on his mommy and he said (gasps) he couldn't open the door end quote oh my god i know oh my god i can't imagine any of this i know this next part is going to Be real sad, too, unfortunately. Because Nikki was so young, he hadn't realized that his mother had died, and it's believed that he continued to talk to her over the (gasps) five days that they were stuck in the car together. That is so devastating and heartbreaking. I can't even handle it. I know. Honestly, like, that got me, like, more than anything else, really. I don't know why, but it just really, that really fucked with me. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really heartbreaking. It's very devastating. Well, because it's one of those things that, you don't realize unless you're in that situation of why would a three-year-old know that she's dead? Dead. Especially like, has he ever been exposed to death? Maybe not. Maybe that conversation's never happened. So like, why, why would he know that? Yeah. And even if you do, I feel like you, you have you're like three. A, yeah. You have a very vague understanding of death. Yeah. Nikki's grandmother, Brenda was the one who told him his mother hadn't survived. She said, quote, I was holding him. And when he was told, He buried his little head in my chest and wrapped his arms around me and cried. He understands his mommy's not with him. Chrissy told him about Jesus. He knows. He told me mommy's with Jesus, end quote. Oh my God. I know. I know. Breaks my heart. Breaks my heart so much. But like you said, they don't really understand. Like they just have that like platitude of like, they're someplace better. Like they're with Jesus now. Like don't worry about it. But like, Like, they don't really have a concrete concept of death. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, my, my nephew, even when he was a little bit older than that, you know, my grandfather, who he was close to, passed. And he had, I think, a dog die as well. And the way he was able, we, like, communicated that to him was they're in the sky. Like, they're in heaven. And I was like, oh, yes. so, and, like, every now and then he would kind of ask for, like, my grandfather. He'd be like, oh, no, he's in the sky. And then he'd be like, oh, yeah, like, that's right. Yeah. But, like, that's kind of, like, the most that, we, under- could, that yeah. we could, yeah, have him understand what that is. The permanence of death. Yeah. yeah. And that's like they don't live anymore. They're not living anymore. Yes, that you can't see them again. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. (sighs) Fucking, yeah. I can't imagine. And I can't imagine like having to try to explain that to a child and console a child at that young age about that. And have to be their mother, no less. Oh my God. Yeah. 17 years after the crash, Nikki said he only has one vague memory from before the accident. Otherwise, the accident is his first clear memory from his childhood. Yeah, because those neuropathways were cemented in there in that yeah, trauma. Yeah, because that's traumatic as fuck. Yeah. For sure. He said he remembered tumbling down the hill, hitting tree after tree <gasps> after tree head on. Oh my God. Then waking up in the passenger seat next to his mother. He said he didn't know what to think looking at her and said he just thought she was asleep and didn't think anything more than that. Then he said, quote, I remember seeing lights. I just remember that there was something there. There was something next to the car the entire time next to my mom. I have a very distinct and vivid picture of it in my head. Wait, what? I mean, it was just a light. It was a big light. And then through the back window of the car itself, I could also see the same thing next to the road. And it had a silhouette. (gasps) There was no specific features, but just a lighted outline of a body. Full body chills. Girl. Oh my God. It was never something that scared me, and I didn't feel afraid when I saw it, end quote. I know. I couldn't handle how much shit happened in this fucking story. The aunt had a fucking premonition dream. Deborah literally had a dream, woke up, saw an apparition on the side of the road, and fucking Nick saw Saw lights lights. the whole time, basically, while he was trapped in the car with his mom. I know. It's I, so many like, things for your brain to process. Like, I literally have just had chills the whole time I listed all those things. Yes. Because my body is, like, rejecting the information and literally trying to, like, push it up through my goosebumps. Like, get out of here. <laughs> no. Be gone. I can't handle the story. I know. And, like, everything's really well recorded. Like, yeah. I mean, you had sources galore. Sources what, galore. LA Times? Yeah. And they're, like, reputable sources. They have the police reports. Like, Deborah Hoyt had no connection to this and had no knowledge of yeah. Christine Skubish's disappearance before any of this happened. Was literally a clean slate and everything was reported so quickly. Like the Teresita Bassa thing, she like said years later and like she worked with the girl so you could like chalk it up to that. Like right. Deborah Hoyt did not know this person and literally called the cops at 2 a.m. from a fucking ranger station on the side of the road to be like, hey, I fucking saw some shit. You might need to go check for a dead body. And was so upset about it. Was so upset about it. She literally could not stop crying when she got home. Like, my brain. I know. I cannot handle any of this. I'm obsessed with all of this. <sighs> Good. I'm so happy. I fucking knew you would be Monique. <laughs> you know me so well. I know you so well. I read this and I was like, mm, Monique's going to be here for this. Two weeks later, Brenda and Dave went back down to the crash site to see if anything was left behind. As Dave got out of the car, he noticed a little mile marker sign that said, 16? 16 Get miles the to Placerville. 
It was at that point that Dave knew. Full fucking body chills. No. Oh my fucking God. When they kept saying that at first, I was like, wait, it was on like Highway 50. Like where'd the fuck the 16 come in? And then they dropped this fucking bombshell at the end. (gasps) Could not handle my life for one second. Full body chills. Oh my God. I know. Dave said, quote, I knew my sister didn't have a dream. It was a premonition. End quote. When they put everything together, it started to make sense. The dream, the apparition that Deborah had seen, and the lights that Nick saw. Nick said he believed it was an angel, but wasn't sure whether it was, quote, God's hand or just a mother looking after her son. End quote. I know. He said he doesn't know, quote, but it was something. It was something greater than me, greater than anything that I'd ever believed. End quote. Strasser said, quote, I absolutely think something special happened here, end quote. When asked if it was a miracle, he said, yeah, I think it's a miracle. He's often thought about it in the years since, noting that it's a very strange series of events that cannot be explained. Regarding the apparition Deborah saw, he said, quote, Christine Skubish never took off her clothes, never climbed up the hill, never lied on the side of the road, never went back down and got redressed and put herself back in the car. Right. None of that happened. She was lying dead in that car for five days before Deborah Hoyt ever saw anybody on that road. End quote. Shortly after Christine and Nikki were found, Deborah's mom came to tell her there was something she needed to see on TV. It was a news report about the police locating Christine and Nikki at exactly where Deborah had seen the apparition. Deborah said, quote, I looked up and I saw the woman that I had saw on the side of the road. She had the same soft face. And if you can imagine her eyes closed, that would have been her. <gasps> End quote. I don't think I've ever had so many chills at a story ever. Girl, me too. And I'm telling the story and I wrote it. Like, I know what's happening and I still like nonstop chills this whole time. And this room is honestly hot as fuck. So yes. <laughs> that is not an air conditioning situation at all. Definitely not. Monique, I could not fucking handle the story for one fucking second. I can't handle the story at all. Can you imagine, like, seeing an apparition and then what was probably, like, a week later seeing a news story, looking up and seeing the fucking woman you saw on the side of the road? You know, when I hear stories like this, I'm like, how can people say they don't believe in, like... uh, And ghosts and spirit. I know. Ghosts or, like, an afterlife or anything or, or just any sort of, like, entities that are not physical or human like i don't understand how people are like no we die we go on the ground and that's it that's it it's one of those things i get it if it hasn't happened to you and you don't have that personal experience you can chalk everything up to like they were homeless they were tired or they was like sure something like you will tell yourself anything of course but for me the thing and, and all of these things can be coincidence even though i don't believe in coincidence but was it deborah hoyt you said yeah her name? where the fuck does she factor in yeah. Because it's not like, well, my relative is missing. My friend is missing. I'm very distressed. So then my subconscious is like bringing her up. No, she's just vac- vacationing. And it's like, we need to leave right fucking now. Yeah. I have a really bad feeling or whatever the fuck. Yeah. That's that thing where it's the, kind of the same thing with the alien thing where it's like the alien phenomenon and the ghost phenomenon are real in the sense of people are experiencing this. Yes. So if this is not actually ghosts or aliens or whatever the fuck, it's something else. Yeah, that they're still experiencing. That there's still an explanation behind it that we just don't know yet. Right. But that doesn't mean the thing isn't happening. 
Correct. Mm -hmm. And that's what I always feel like needs to be like the distinction between those things. Yeah. That's totally fair. Weird as fuck. Yeah. Uh, I can't handle the story. (gasps) I can't handle the story. And I'm doing the story. (laughs) That's how you know it's wild. So Deborah sees the news report, looks up. The picture on the screen is literally the face she saw on the side of the road. She has no doubt about this. But again, Strasser insisted, quote, the woman that Deborah Hoyt saw could not have been Christine Skubish because the night that Deborah Hoyt saw this woman, Christine Skubish had already been dead for like for five, five, days, five right? days, end quote. Yes. The coroner's report said that Christine had died on impact and that her death was immediate. Three-year-old Nick was left alone and while he was found naked and his shoe was on the side of the road, which indicated that he had probably climbed the embankment at some point mm. before going back down to the car, Deborah was absolutely sure that the figure she saw lying on the side of the road was a full-grown woman and not a young boy. Yeah. And I don't really see how you could mix those two things up. A full-grown woman is nowhere close. a three-year-old close. boy. A three-year-old boy are nowhere close in size. I'm sorry. There's literally... No. I'm a small girl and you could never mistake... For a three-year-old my, kid. My body for a three-year-old boy, ever. No, never. Even if I was curled in the fetal position on the ground, never. Yeah, like maybe a teenager, but definitely not a three-year-old. No, no. So whether you believe Deborah Hoyt really saw an apparition, or it was just a strange series of coincidences, the truth is police would likely not have located Christine's car in time to save Nikki if it hadn't been for Deborah reporting the naked woman she saw in the exact spot where Christine's car had crashed. And that was the crazy fucking story of Christine and Nick Skubish. That was fucking incredible. Thank you. Holy shit. Yeah. I've never heard of this story. It's fucking insane. I hadn't either. And it's fucking wild. Yeah. Yeah. I truly don't think I've ever had so many chills (gasps) at any story ever. I know. And it had so many things in it. I just love like all the little, all the little things coming together. The fact that Nick said he saw the lights really got me later. Yeah, because when you're saying it, I was like, oh, like the police cars? And it was like, nope. no. Like, literally, he said the whole time there was like a light next to his mom, which is fucking crazy. It's like her spirit taking care of her and like boy. watching over him. I know, oh I know. That's what I, that's what I want to believe as well. I'm shooketh by the story. I was too. I don't think you can feel any other way besides shooketh. It was incredible. Thank Good. you so much. I'm glad you liked it. I hope everyone got as many chills as Monique and I got during that story. I mean, I feel if you didn't, you're like a monster. <laughs> Sorry, but yes. Sorry, but facts is facts. Because um, that story was fucking crazy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Of course. I'm very excited for the little bit of crime time we're going to get into now. Yeah. You got a little crime for me? Show do. Fuck Yeah. Lay it on me. So this is the story of Meghana Rajad Hayaksha. Wow. Yep. You did a very good job with that. Thank you. Sources. The Miami Herald, ideamensch.com, inspiry.com, miamispineinstitute.com, LinkedIn, and spatslawfirm.com. By 2019, Meghana Rajad Hayaksha was living the high life. In 2002, the Detroit native had graduated from the University of Michigan with degrees in business and political science. 
Her first job out of school was in pharmaceutical sales in the Detroit metro area. She quickly realized how much she liked medicine and interacting with people and spent more than a decade working in the healthcare industry as a medical device salesperson and marketing professional. She eventually moved to Miami and opened the Miami Spine Institute with her husband, Amar. According to their website, quote, The Miami Spine Institute specializes in minimally invasive spine surgery, where the physicians use the latest technology and innovation to perform the least invasive procedure possible with the most effective and safe results, end quote. Megana took the role of chief marketing officer while her husband, an orthopedic surgeon, tended to the patients. In addition to running the institute, the mother of two was also involved with several charities and community organizations in the Miami area. Because of this, Megana and Amar regularly mingled with the high society crowd in Miami. The two became regulars in the society pages, with Megana often being photographed in designer clothes and handbags and fundraising events at Vizcaya, the Faena Forum, and the Perez Art Museum. Oh, shit. Okay. That's fancy as fuck. Fancy as fuck. And not to... My parents sometimes appear in the society pages. Oh. Because they're a little bougie. Um, <laughs> so I think it's a very possible that either they... They know or have they've they've been acquainted or, with. Maybe? Or at minimum are in the same... We're at the same <sighs> events type of thing. I mean, yes. That's what's happening in my mind. Whether it did or not, I'm making yeah. this scenario happen. I think it's... I think there's a possibility. Because my parents are, also, are very charitable people. So hence the... Society pages. <laughs> then, in early April 2019, the feds arrived at the 39-year-old's $1.7 million waterfront home and arrested her for fraud. <gasps> Specifically, return fraud. Re- what the fuck is that? I'm going to get into it, Tell girl. Tell me, girl. Return fraud is when a person purchases an item, then uses its receipt to return another item of lesser value. <gasps> A 2018 study conducted by the National Retail Federation says that 11% of retailers' annual sales were returned, and 8% of those returns are likely to be fraudulent, which is fucking a huge percentage. A huge percentage. I'm like... If 8% out of 11 are fraudulent, what the fuck? Is it fucked up that I'm like, should I be taking notes? Like, this is like a racket, it seems like. So... While it seems like a victimless crime as far as actual people are concerned, it's still a crime that is being committed that could lead to harsh consequences. That's very true. Yes. Situations that could be considered return fraud include purchasing an item and using it for a short period of time before returning, also known as wardrobing or free renting. (laughs) We tuck the tag in and you take it off and then you have, oh, it didn't fit. I didn't wear it to this event the other night. We are definitely not incriminating ourselves no, in any of this. No. None of this is on the record. No, no, no one's no. ever done that. Returning stolen merchandise for a full refund, placing a higher price tag on something before returning it, also known as price switching, purchasing an item at a discount retailer to return to a higher end retailer, and purchasing an item with the intent to return the same previously used or broken item for a full refund, and keep also the new known. One. As Mm. switch fraud. Turns out that for 17 months, Megana Rajad Hayaksha had been running a high fashion retail scam through the internet and mail. Now, here's the thing. Fun fact, I'm not teaching you how to commit a crime. Anytime you do anything through the mail, it's a felony. It's a federal crime. It's a federal crime because it's a, a federal institution. Yes. 
Just FYI. Just FYI. So things like, I'm going to mail myself weed. If you're doing it in a place that's not legal, federal crime. Yes. FYI. That being said, U.S. Postal Service, definitely still the biggest drug dealers, like drug traffickers of the fucking world. For sure. That was sure. They unintentionally, obviously, they're not, that's not on their fucking slogan. Like, they're not proud of it. But yeah. I actually, I live in a doorman building and recently my doorman was like, did you take like a package that was yours before like they put it in your mailbox? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, we can't do that because that's like a federal offense. And I'm like, it's not if it's mine. Yeah, if it's mailed to me, I can do whatever the fuck I want with it. Because it's like, oh, he didn't scan it yet. And I'm like, it sits there for four hours. What? What? Yeah. He was just, and I'm like, this I actually this is actually not a federal offense if it's my mail. If I stole someone else's, then yes, it's a felony. Yeah. But it's like, don't fucking come for me. I have a true crime podcast. I know my shit. <gasps> I know my crimes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm well within my rights, sir. Back to the story. From her Coral Gables home... Megana bought 69 handbags by Fendi, Gucci, and other famous designer brands from TJ Maxx's website. She then bought knockoffs of the bags on Amazon, which I had no what? idea that Amazon sold knockoffs. Yeah. All right. Because that's also illegal, selling counterfeit merchandise. Yeah. But in the in the criminal complaint, it said Amazon. Hmm. Switched the tags and returned the fakes to the retailer for a full <gasps> refund. While keeping the high-priced merchandise, robbing TJ Maxx of about $135,000. Damn! I was like, how long did this take to do? That's like a really nice year's salary for most people. Yeah. And I'm sure she made that in like a couple of months doing this. Yeah. She's a $1.7 million waterfront home in Coral Gables. Hold on, let me get my notebook real quick. I gotta write write some things down. Um, (laughs) I have some notes to take. Megana then sold 10 of the real luxury bags through a consignment outlet in New Jersey, the real real, pocketing mm. about $11,000 for herself. Damn. So she would keep the fucking real bags. Yeah. Ah, uh, I hate to be like, this is brilliant, but like, this is kind of brilliant. I'm not supporting this at all, but am I intrigued? Yes. According to the criminal complaint, Megana appeared on TJ Maxx's radar in November 2017. Company investigators suspected her of committing fraud by ordering high-end handbags on its e-commerce website using PayPal for credit card purchases and then returning the expensive merchandise for refunds over and over again. Then in 2017, TJ Maxx investigators began carefully monitoring her orders of fancy handbags, including a Dolce & Gabbana welcome handbag with painted flowers priced at $2,000. And I looked up all these bags. I also know I'm not a trendy, cool person, and I thought they were really Stop fucking ugly. It. I can't even with you. You are like the trendiest person <laughs> I know. She's the cutest person and like pattern dresses. I can't handle it. I kind of want to slap you right after even saying that. Well, like... I think I have style, but I don't think I'm tre- – I'm not on trend. Oh, okay, okay. I'm not trendy. You're not like – The I'm, latest fashion. Yeah, and I'm I'm doing a thing that no one else is doing because I'm going to start this trend. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm definitely no, not No, no, you're that. just very cl- – yeah. I just have a very classy um, aesthetic, I would say. Yeah, yes. thank you. She's literally wearing like a little black dress right now, <laughs> and she's sitting next to the girl in yoga pants and a crop top. That she slept in, so. But you look adorable, as always. <laughs> Thank you. The lies Monique tells me. I love her so much. I am incapable of lying. <laughs> if you've ever seen me lie and how bad I am at it, you know. <gasps> I, 
<laughs> oh my god, so many times I like don't pick up that other people are trying to get me to like lie with them and they'll be like telling the lie and I'll be like, that's not what happened. No. And then they turn around like, are you you stupid bitch? Did you really say that? Like, <laughs> you knew the fuck I was trying to lie about the situation. And I'd be like, I didn't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm bad at this. But yeah, I thought all these handbags that were mentioned were like ugly as fuck. But whatever. Uh, obviously, other people didn't think so because she was able to fucking sell them. Honestly, that's how I feel a lot about a lot of designer bags, honestly. Like, I feel like you're paying just because it's the name. And honestly, they look like shit most of the time. 10,000%. Right? Okay. Yeah. I always thought it was just me and that I was just like a cheap bitch. And that was me. That was secretly my brain just being like, no, you can't afford these bags. So you have to tell yourself you don't like them and they're ugly. But really, you want one when like, no, I actually really don't like them. I mean, I have a few, you know, Louis. Okay. You know, but that's kind of a classic. It's, it's classic. And sometimes I don't mind those. They are nice. Yeah. yeah. And I definitely... I prefer the checkered ones versus the... Literally same. The LV logo. I don't really care for that, personally. I completely agree. But, I mean, I also didn't pay full price. I bought them all in consignment because uh, No, because you're smart. I'm yeah. a baller on a budget. Thank you. And because a lot of these trendy people, like, have them for a few months. They're like, I'm over it. I need... it's This is off trend. I need a new thing. Yeah. Whereas... Other other people would consider that an investment and you intend to keep that bag for years and years. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Before shipping the merchandise to Megana, TJ Maxx investigators marked the handbags with ultraviolet invisible ink that would not be visible to the naked eye without a black light. Oh my god, TJ Maxx. Dude, are you fucking like, nailing it. Right? Are you like secretly spies? Like, is this a spy network? What's happening? I was so here for this. I know. I was like, I did not expect TJ Maxx to like be at this level. They are. Damn. They're right. not fucking around. Don't fuck with the Max people. <laughs> <laughs> they don't fuck around, apparently. <laughs> I'm obsessed with you. <laughs> The retailers' investigators soon discovered that Megana repeatedly returned the merchandise with the TJ Maxx tags to obtain refunds, but the handbags did not have the UV ink marking. <sighs> dun, dun, dun. The investigators kept track of dozens of requests for refunds, but the bags returned by Megana were always counterfeit. Then, in late February 2019, Megana placed an order with TJ Maxx on its e-commerce site, for a Valentino candy stud, a Gucci Marmont, and a Fendi convertible crossbody clutch. Only half of that was English to me, honestly. <laughs> because it actually isn't English. That, that's well, right. yes. That's Valentino, very, yes. Gucci, and Fendi are not English. Yes. So. I basically got, correct. like, crossbody bag. That was that was what I picked up out of that. Yeah, I looked them all up. I didn't think they were cute. Again, I'm not trendy or cool. I like a statement bag. Yeah, there you go. Which is why the Julie Malo speaks to my soul. Oh yes, I have Correct. a wicker bag that's a fucking flamingo. Like I, this is this is the these are the bags I'm fucking. With. Yes, I'm obsessed with your typewriter bag too, which is like, <gasps> uh, yes. I can't. I feel like I've mentioned it on multiple episodes because I just it's so fucking cute. I can't handle it. Thank you. Yeah, that's my vibe. Like mm-hmm. a the Valentino candy stud. Sorry, I'm not. I just ugh, I thought it was yeah. ugly. I didn't like it, but. Whatever, whatever. whatever you're into, yeah. Exactly. You if, if you're into it and you have like a fucking closet full of them, mazel. That's wonderful. Yeah. 
In March, TJ Maxx joined forces with the U.S. Secret Service, which specializes in counterfeit probes. They were not fucking around Holy on this shit. at all. Because they're like, Holy this shit. fucking chick built us out of $135,000. Yeah. It's not like it was a fucking, okay, it was like $200. Like, or like fuck. she stole a lip gloss from the like checkout line. Like this is a hundred, this is like. Yes. People buy homes and cars yes, for this amount. Yes, like a fancy car yes. for this amount. It's not fucking chump change, no. Exactly. Which specializes in counterfeit probes to zero in on her in an undercover operation. I love every part of this, Monique. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. The um, TJ Maxx undercover service. Like what? Yeah. with this, it's, it's brought to you by TJ Maxx and the US Secret Service. I fucking love this. On March 13th, a Secret Service agent dressed as a UPS worker and delivered the three handbags to Megana's $1.7 million Coral Gables home. That afternoon, video surveillance footage from the UPS store on South Dixie Highway in Coral Gables showed Megana dropping off a box to ship the merchandise back to TJ Maxx. When the handbags arrived at TJ Maxx's e-commerce center in Tennessee two days later, investigators found that the bags she had returned didn't have the ultraviolet marking. Shocker. And that she had returned counterfeit handbags instead of the actual merchandise to obtain her refunds. The criminal complaint states, quote, When the returned handbags arrived, the TJ Maxx investigators photographed and recorded a detailed written description of the returned handbags and checked the interior of the handbags with a black light for the UV ink marking. Based on the inspection, TJ Maxx determined that the returned handbags were not TJ Maxx merchandise, even though the returned handbags had TJ Maxx tags attached, end quote. I feel like this girl had like the... The machines. Yes, had the little like... To do like, the tags. Yes, yeah, yes. That she would just cut them and then re- re-tag them and yeah. she knew which tags that TJ Maxx used. Like, I don't know if she bought that or she worked retail and stole that one day or, like, how she fucking got her hands on that. But I have a feeling she I think you just buy it. Yeah. No, because she was a fucking – this is a 39-year-old who used to sell medical devices and is a fucking CMO at a spinal institute. She's not working at the fucking Gap. Why are you even doing this then? Exactly. This has to be, like, just kleptomania or something. It's, like, the rush of it. I mean, there's going to be – are we getting into the psychology of it a little uh, later, uh, maybe? Or? There's going to be, like, an explanation that okay, okay. I don't necessarily buy. All right. But I'll let you be the judge. Okay. Oh, I will, Monique. <laughs> I will judge. <laughs> judge and harshly. <laughs> Megana was arrested, spent one night in federal lockup, and was released on $250,000 bond. And just to take a, a second to go back to a previous episode, Kian Kativi was released on $5,000 bond, for, even though he, like, allegedly stabbed people. Because, like, that's how much they were like, this is bullshit. Yeah. Like, this you're really chick, being a bitch about this. Like, Right. Yeah. This chick fucking stole handbags from TJ Maxx, and they're like, $250,000 bond. Yeah. So, perspective. And and I'm not saying that, that she doesn't deserve to be given a bond that high. Yeah, fuck her. Like, yeah, no. get out of here. But it's because they know she did this. For sure, yeah. Whereas like with Keon, they were like, there's a very clear trail here. Exactly. Yeah. In early May 2019, Megana Rajad Hayaksha was charged with three counts of committing mail fraud and one count of selling stolen goods between November 2017 and March 2019. She pleaded not guilty to the charges, but changed her plea to guilty when she went before U.S. District Judge Ursula Ungaro later that same month. 
Megana faced one to one and a half years in prison under federal sentencing guidelines. Her defense attorney, Christopher Lyons, sought no prison time. Fucking obviously, I guess yeah. that's his job. While federal prosecutor Stephanie Hauser asked for six months of prison time and six months of house arrest. Which house arrest is the okay. $1.7 million. Yeah, I was like in Miami, like, yeah, I'm sure she's got a great view. You can get anything you want delivered, like. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's better than like, being in the clinic. The girl has fucking Amazon, like, delivered to her house. Yeah. She's and, fine. And I believe anything other than, uh, anything above $1,000 is grand larceny. It's a felony. Yeah. So being a felon, a convicted felon, and, and just chilling out in your waterfront home. It's going to relax. Like, it's cushy as fuck. Yeah. And being able to fucking Instacart Publix to you. Right? Get the fuck out of here. That's the only way to feel I about Publix. So much. Uh, Where shopping is a pleasure. Shopping is a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is not a punishment at all. This is a fucking vacation. You're right. Yeah, I'm about to do this just to get the vacation money, girl. Like, I'm like, I'm actually really tired. <laughs> <laughs> I could use just like <laughs> just six a few months. Days. Six yeah, months six, would be amazing. Six months locked in my house. That's great. It's fine. Lyons told the judge that when federal agents with the U.S. Secret Service seized 59 of the designer handbags from her bedroom closet, they were in pristine condition. He told the judge, quote, it was not about greed and it was not about vanity, end quote. Lyons argued that his client suffered from depression after the death of her father and two difficult pregnancies, but never got mental health treatment until her arrest. He told the judge, quote, I know. I was like, this is like retail, the retail therapy, like excuse, defense, the retail therapy defense. But it's like stealing and this is one, this is a lot of work. Yeah. You have to like, do you get that much of a rush from doing this that like, you have to, you have to buy the handbag. You have to buy the exact same knockoff. Knockoff. And not all knockoffs are created equal. Yes. So you need to buy a good one. A decent one, yeah. You need to have the accoutrement to like switch out the tags. You gotta take it to the fucking UPS store. Like... And then you gotta put it up on the real reel and sell it. Like this is a lot of work. It's a lot of work for... I mean it was a decent amount of... I was gonna say a decent amount of reward I guess but she didn't need it. But the Why? thing is like it, she didn't need it not that that justifies it, but it would kind of, the motivation would make more sense. Yeah, totally. Not, I'm depressed because my dad died and I had two difficult pregnancies. So I'm going to buy a bunch of handbags and like... Return them return with counterfeits. Them? What? Yeah. He told the judge, quote, these bags were like a distraction for her depression, end quote. The defense attorney told the Miami Herald, quote, Megana is accepting full responsibility for her actions, and she's actively pursuing efforts to make TJ Maxx whole for their losses. She's voluntarily in therapy seeking professional help, end quote. But the prosecutor contended that because Megana carried out her retail scheme for a year and a half instead of seeking treatment for her depression, she deserved to spend some time in prison for committing fraud. And again, this is, this is grand larceny. Yeah, it's a felony. I kind of agree. Like, you're right. She had plenty of money to afford a therapist. Like, just go to fucking therapy. Yeah. Most people don't go to therapy because they can't afford it. It's a a luxury to be able to afford to go to therapy. So it's almost insulting that you can afford to go and you're not going to go and you're going to do this fucking shit, which is a literal crime. Yes. And then pretend like, oh, no, I was like so depressed. Like, this really helped with my depression. Like... Fuck you. If this was a guy and he was raping women and he was like, I was really depressed and like the rapes really helped me. Like it really made me happy. <laughs> right. Like you'd be like, no, fuck Go you. Fuck you're yourself. a fucking asshole. Yeah. Like, no. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm I know that's really, not the same. That's like a very drastic yeah, I analogy, know. but yeah. But I'm having a really hard time finding sympathy. I don't feel sympathetic for this girl at all. No. Same. And if we have any people who are psychologists or anything who have a different perspective, hit us up. And if we're being shitty and unsympathetic, uh, let us know because I'm having a really hard time yeah. finding any sort of sympathy for this woman. I might still be shitty and unsympathetic at the end of it. You <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I mean, facts. Between her guilty plea and her sentencing, it's clear that Megana went on a PR campaign to make herself appear in a better light as all of these online profiles began popping up on her. When I looked this up, okay. I found all these profiles and I was like, what are the, what's the date of these? And it's literally between her pleading guilty and her sentencing <gasps> are all of these profiles. While none of them mentioned the arrest, they painted her as a successful entrepreneur who loved her family. The following is an excerpt from a profile on her done by ideamensch.com published on June 28th, 2019, just one month before sentencing. It reads, quote, what advice would you give your younger self? I would tell all younger people that they should spend more time with their parents. No one will love you like your parents. Sometimes they just want to know if you're okay. And when we're younger, we don't realize how smart they really are. I would also tell my younger self to listen to my parents. At times when I thought they were wrong, they usually were not. End quote. So it's also like milking the like dead dad situation. I don't like that. I, yeah. Yeah, I... It all seems very calculated to me. Oh, for sure. I completely agree. While it would be another month before Megana would find out her fate with the courts, a verdict had already been cast by the Miami elites. According to her defense attorney, after Megana was caught for stealing the designer handbags from TJ Maxx and was convicted as a felon, she was shunned by many in Miami society circles and even at her children's private school in Coconut Grove, which, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's Miami for yeah. you. Like, they shun you for way less than this. Like, way fucking less than this. <laughs> and you should know you were running in those circles forever. Yeah. I'm sure you shunned a few people in your day. I'm sure you, like, in the corner would, like, about the person who walked in. Oh, yeah. Because they were fucking someone else or that wasn't their husband or whatever the fuck. Yeah. So or you doing this fucking shit. So yeah. you think you being a convicted... It's just that thing of, like, I am immune from this. This will never happen to me. Yeah, no. Still... 16 people wrote letters of support to Judge Ungaro, saying that Megana was a dedicated mother who volunteered at her children's school, performed charity work, and did various acts of kindness. Several said her crime was, quote, completely out of character, end quote. Except she did it. So it's her character. And she did this for, like, a long time. It wasn't like a she did it. A year and a half. It wasn't like she did it fucking once and then was like, ah, all right, you know, that was fun and I made my fucking bank, but... I'm not going to do that anymore. That, that I actually really didn't like that. I didn't feel good about it. No, she loved it and she kept fucking doing it. She was 69 like, yes. bags. <gasps> That's so fucking wild. That is so many bags. Oh my God. In Amar, Megana's husband's letter to the judge, he described how his wife fell into depression after the death of her father to colon cancer and the birth of their two children. He wrote, quote, as a doctor, I'm embarrassed that I didn't see the signs of her depression. I know my wife. If given the chance, she will continue to seek help and improve her mental well-being. Megana is the glue that holds this family together. Without her, we would fall apart. End quote. At her sentencing on July 25th, 2019, 
the contrite socialite cried before the U.S. District Judge Ursula Ungaro as she apologized repeatedly for stealing about $135,000 worth of designer handbags from a major retailer in an online scam. She said, quote, I never thought in a million years I'd be here in a federal court as a defendant. I'm so embarrassed and ashamed for my conduct. Your Honor, I have so much guilt about what I did. My family has been so hurt. My actions were stupid and made no sense. End quote. I mean, yeah. I mean, and here's the thing. And maybe this is me being super callous. Expialidocious. <laughs> um, I think you felt bad about being caught. Yes. You didn't feel bad about what you were doing. You felt bad about being caught. And then, Fucking own your shit. Shut the fuck up. Thank you. And that your family looked at you differently now and was like, oh. And society looked at you differently now. And like, now you're not invited to like... Yeah, The super bougie parties that only have 30 attendees. Everyone looks at you like you're a common criminal now and you don't fucking like that shit. Because you are. So now you want to shed some crocodile tears and fucking pretend you're contrite. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, I'm having a real hard time finding any sympathy for her. I, I tend to agree. I'm totally with you on this one, honestly. In the end, Judge Ungaro showed Megana mercy for her crime, giving her no prison time after considering her quick guilty plea and pledged to reimburse TJ Maxx. The judge also took into account her history of depression. Ungaro gave Megana four years of probation, requiring her to be placed under house arrest for one year while wearing an electronic monitor, and ordered her to perform 1,600 hours of community service over the next four years. Megana was also ordered to reimburse $166,000 to TJ Maxx to cover the value of the stolen merchandise, as well as the cost of the federal investigation that led to her arrest. She also has to pay a fine of $40,000 and a forfeiture judgment of $11,000 to the U.S. government. But other than having to shell out over $200,000 and being branded a pariah in Miami society pages, Megana got off pretty scot-free. Her LinkedIn profile shows that she's still listed as the chief marketing officer of the Miami Spine Institute. What? Mm-hmm. She committed a felony and she still got to keep her job? Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool, and, cool, cool. Just making sure. Well, because she runs it with her fucking husband. Oh, okay, yeah. All right. But also, like, wouldn't she... I mean, I guess that's the, you know, till death do us part, you know, good times and bad. Like, yeah. I would have been like, you're poisoning my business. It's not a great look for you to be attached to it anymore. Yeah. And since 2018, she has been the property portfolio manager at RRE LLC, which I can't find what that is. Okay. But I'm imagining the the two R's there are her last name. So it's probably her and her husband and like some other person who are like selling properties. Okay. And that is the what the fuck story of Meghana Rajad Hayaksha. What a weird fucking crime. Uh, yeah, and I, I understand that grief shows up in very different ways, but this is... I, I'm having a really hard time connecting these two. I agree. Also, as someone who suffered from depression, like, I couldn't even, like, get out of bed barely. Like, I couldn't fucking run a scam to, like, switch out a bunch of fucking bags and, like, go to the UPS store and get a bunch of, like, shit done. Like, And then, like, no. sell them. No. That's a lot of fucking That's work. a lot. Obviously, depression affects everyone differently, but... Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I have like zero sympathy for her. Yeah, I don't, I don't really either. And she was under house arrest for a year with like an ankle monitor. Again. In, in her, her $1.7 yeah. million dollar waterfront Coral Gables home. Yeah. Zero her. sympathy. Yes. 
and got to keep her and she's fucking doing job. fine clearly yes yeah she's really had no serious repercussions from this so not really other yeah. than she's not photographed at fine anymore wow exactly join the fucking club yeah neither does anybody else <laughs> neither yeah. the fuck am i um yeah that was amazing i fucking loved that i love Thank that you. you do like the not, full gamut yes you don't stick to just the murders and the rapes and the kidnappings. She really goes all out. Thank you. The whole spectrum. I love it. Because it's a hundred stealing $135,000 from a TJ Maxx? No, that's a fucking lot. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. No. That is dedication. I No. Absolutely. I couldn't do that. And it's shit. Like, when I hear about things like this, I'm like, you need to get a job, man. Yeah. But you had a job. You had a great fucking job that I'm sure you made fucking bank at. Yeah. I don't understand i have this job in the podcasting world and i have like two other jobs yeah and i'm barely nailing it at any of them yeah like same so i had i would not have any i can i hadn't responded to texts in like three weeks from people because i would get the text in the middle of work and be like i'm gonna deal with this later and then i realized it was three weeks later and i was like fuck so I I can't even respond to a text in a timely manner right now, let alone have like this like fashion scheme ring yeah. running out of my fucking house. Flipping back. She like, they've had the undercover guy go to the UPS, deliver it, and literally like watch her that same day go out and uh, drop her off. Yeah. I can't return a fucking Amazon thing I bought for until it's literally the day before the 30 days is up. And then I'm like, <laughs> yes. oh fuck, I got to go fucking put this in the mailbox or I'm not going to get any of my money back. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is the most ambitious depression I've ever fucking <laughs> heard of, but like, it's again, everyone's different. Pre- depression. Yeah. <laughs> no sympathy. I'm with you, Monique. Fuck her. I really can't handle this. Yeah, I really don't have any sympathy for her. And she just got off scot free. Yeah. If I did this, you would understand. You'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, you're a broke bitch and you needed $130,000. Like, that's why you did this. Sure. Yes. Yeah. I'm not living in a $1.7 million waterfront home in Miami. No. No. Which of us are? None. That was so fucking good, though. Thank Thank you you. for that. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm now going to have an amazing week because I didn't have to hear about any, like, gruesome murders or rapes or anything. Just when you go to the max, you see those bags. Just, I was like, what are you suggesting, Monique? Just buy them and love them if you can afford them. Not... Don't do this crazy Don't shit. Do this. Because fucking TJ Maxx has like UV paint shit. Apparently, yeah. TJ Maxx is not fucking around no. with their investigator department. Yes. Clearly. Yes. They have a spy school, I'm pretty sure. I'm guessing. Yeah. It lo- sounds like it. So, you know, <laughs> if you thinking about this shit, like how Amy was like, I'm going to take notes. I'm going to get my notebook, yeah. The note at the end is TJ Maxx isn't fucking around. Yeah. Well, I mean, the worst part is, like, what is the moral of the story here? Like, If you have money, you get away with everything. There you go. Boom. There you go. And on that note, (laughs) thanks so much for listening, guys. You can find us on the gram if you don't uh, follow us on the gram already. We're at another fucking horror podcast. You can find me at Pinup Girl Mo. You can find me at Lobotomy, and that's Lobot period Amy. Every sixth episode, we do a True Listener Tales episode. Uh, and we have one coming up, so please email us your creepy, weird, what the fuck stories at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the U in fucking. Guys, you're amazing. We're obsessed with you. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.